Our sermon text this morning comes from the 20th chapter of Luke, beginning at verse 27. However, before we go there, it makes reference to an old covenant practice that we find in Deuteronomy 25. So will you turn first to Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10. Before we turn to Luke 20, beginning at verse 27. In Deuteronomy, of course, Moses is addressing the people of God as they are ready, right there on the Jordan River, ready to cross over east to west from the plains of Moab into the land of promise that they had been waiting for, yearning for, dreaming of for the past 40 years and more, really. And he's expounding to them how they are to live once they cross over the river into the promised land. It says a number of things. We begin at verse 5. When brothers live together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. And she shall declare, Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. And now we turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. Jesus is teaching in the temple on about Tuesday of the final week before the cross. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, His brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless. And the second, 
and the third married her. And in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you've spoken well. But they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Amen. May God add his blessing to our reading and understanding of these things. We miss an important element of our Christian education if we don't pay special attention to the effectiveness with which our Lord Jesus Christ answered his adversaries. And they were always there, weren't they? They were lurking in the shadows, waiting for him, waiting to catch him in something he might say. And as you read your New Testaments, you realize that these adversaries came in every stripe and every color. They come from all sorts of theological perspectives. And in fact, one of the stunning things that we discover when we open the Gospels is just how diverse a religion rabbinical Judaism really is and was then. The reliance of that or of any religion on oral traditions and the sayings of the rabbis down through the ages, reliance on that teaching and traditions of mere men opens it up to this kind of theological diversity because not all men think alike. So, as far back as the Judaism of the very first century AD, there were the theologically liberal school of Rabbi Hillel on the one hand, and on the other, the more restrictive theological school of Rabbi Shammai. Those happened to be the two main schools or streams of Jewish theological thought at the time. And the stream down which any particular individual rabbi floated in his own teaching soon became clear from the rabbinical sources that he would quote as he taught. So as a parallel to this, uh, if today I were to embellish and support my own sermon outline, my own sermon points, if I were to embellish them with the various opinions of 19th century German theologians, 
you'd know that I belong to a very different theological camp than if I were always quoting John Calvin or the Puritans, let's say, or Robert Schuller, or Joel Osteen, or Benny Hinn. We are known by the company we keep, even by the company that we keep on our bookshelves. And if that's true of any of us, it's certainly true of preachers. And there's a proverb that makes that very point. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Now, in Jesus' case, he had never attached himself as a disciple to any rabbi before him, either for better or for worse. That's not where he got his theological education. So whenever Jesus taught, he wasn't representing any particular rabbinical school, which was a concern for the temple authorities, wasn't it? We saw this up in verses 1 and 2. They spoke saying, tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Or who's the one who gave you this authority? They wanted to see his rabbinical credentials if he was going to be teaching there in the temple. But what are Jesus' credentials? He'd grown up apprenticed, it seems, to his mother's husband, who was carpenter. A carpenter. And the theological influences he drank in were those that we should all be seeking and drinking in for ourselves. Today we call them the means of grace. But he, the Lord Jesus, knew them as the word of God and prayer. As for the word of God, he'd grown up in the synagogue in Nazareth. In the synagogue where God's law and the prophets were read every week and where the biblical psalms were sung every week. Biblical teaching authoritatively shaped his thinking and his character and actually charted the course and direction of his life. That much had become clear by the time Jesus was a boy of 12. When there in the temple, sitting among the teachers, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. At the age of 12. Well, he didn't get those impressive answers from the opinions of this or that rabbi. He'd gotten them from the authoritative word of God. As for prayer, Jesus was at it all the time, wasn't he? His whole life was one long, sustained communion with his Father in prayer. And so much was this true, that the breaking of that sweet communion for the very first time in his life Losing the lifelong experience of his father's smile of love 
that awful separation never before experienced in the life of Jesus, that became the chief agony of the cross for him. Not the nails, not the suffocation, The interruption as the father turned his face away was something absolutely new and horrible to the Lord Jesus. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was something new. So all of this biblical training and personal, practical communion with his father in heaven renders Jesus, in the course of his life on earth, renders him an absolutely straight shooter when it comes to answering people's questions. He has no fear of men. He's not offering just another man's opinion when he gives people an answer. He's prepared to answer his adversaries clearly and authoritatively Because from the earliest days of childhood, he's immersed himself in the word of God and prayer. Now, in today's passage, we see men representing one sect of Judaism coming to Jesus as he teaches in the temple. These men are Sadducees. And you may well ask, okay, what exactly is a Sadducee? Sadducees were members of the priestly family that traced its lineage back to Zadok, the high priest back in the time of David and Solomon, a thousand years earlier. Those were Sadducees. These days we hear a lot in public discourse about the privilege in America of one social group over another. But, of course, social privilege is nothing new under the sun. The Sadducees, by virtue of their being born into the right family, had by this time emerged as the Jewish aristocracy. That's who the Sadducees were. You don't just bump into a Sadducee when you're downtown on Main Street or Market Street at the market. You don't run into them. Because Sadducees don't mingle. Sadducees tended to hang around the temple in Jerusalem because that's where the real action is. As far as they're concerned, that's where the political power is. That's where all the impressive buildings are. That's where you'll find the well-heeled, the well-housed, the well-fed. Sadducees represented a substantial voting block in the 70-member Jewish Sanhedrin the high court of Judaism. Now, all of that background about the Sadducees, but here in verse 27, Luke identifies the Sadducees as a Jewish sect who say that there is no resurrection. That's important. In fact, Luke goes even further further to distinguish them from the Pharisees in Acts 23, verse 8. 
Acts 23, verse 8. You may want to turn there, because there we find the Apostle Paul, who is unjustly framed and apprehended and hauled before the Sanhedrin. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So for all their Jewish heritage, for all their Jewish privilege, the Sadducees are, as a group, rank materialists. And absolutely lost, as the Sadducees see things, all life is biological life. Period. There's nothing besides it and nothing beyond it. So enjoy the good things of this life. Enjoy the robes that you wear, the good food that you eat. Enjoy these things because once you've died, you're gone for good. Once you've died, you have ceased to exist. These are the men who now approach Jesus with this little conundrum. They come to him and they say, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he's childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died childless. And the second and the third married her. And in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her. You can almost see the smirk on their faces as they pose this problem, can't you? Because although according to God's law, this would in fact be the normal and godly course of action, a course of action that protects not only the widowed woman, but also the legacy of her deceased husband. In actual fact, the story as it unfolds fails to pass the smell test. At least to me it does. There are commentators, actually, who say maybe this was the case, actually, that they were bringing to him. I don't think so, because it doesn't pass the smell test. These Sadducees aren't interested in learning the will and wisdom of God for an actual empirical situation. They're not trying to help some devastated family. This is a hypothetical scenario, obviously dreamed up and offered by these Sadducees only as something to scoff at. Something to mock, something to hold in derision. And they're not mocking the practice of leveret marriage, which obviously had some social utility in this life. 
Think, for instance, of Boaz and Ruth, who followed this very procedure of leveret marriage back in their day. No, the Sadducees are using this fabricated story to mock the whole notion of resurrection. In that coming resurrection day, resurrection day, whose wife will she be? Every last one of them had her. The first half of this, our sermon text this morning, verses 27 to 33, presents for us a clear and obvious mockery of biblical doctrine on the part of the Sadducees, a mockery of biblical doctrine. They drop this live grenade into Jesus' lap, but within its kill radius, they're hoping also to take out, along with him, they're hoping to take out the theology and doctrine of the Pharisees with all their confounded supernaturalism. As if we should even concern ourselves with Spiritual things like angels, spirits, or the resurrection of the body on the last great day. That's what the Sadducees' mindset is. So they pose the question. But Jesus isn't walking into the trap, is he? He's wiser and he's better grounded than that. Better grounded in the word of God and prayer. And so he answers their little hypothetical conundrum, their mockery of biblical doctrine. He answers it by showing us something of the majesty of the believer's destiny. Majesty of the believer's destiny. Let me share with you five quick points about Jesus' answer to the Sadducees' mockery of biblical doctrine. The points are alphabetical. First of all, notice that his answer to them was authoritative. It was authoritative. When they first approached Jesus, there in the temple, up in verses 27 and 28, they address him as didaskala, teacher, or master. Now, if they had just zipped their lips at that point, they'd have done fine because teacher and master, he is. He is teacher and master. He is didaskala. But the whole encounter then goes downhill from there. He is teacher and master because for well over 30 years he's immersed himself not in the opinions of men but in the word of God and prayer. With what rabbinical sayings does Jesus feel compelled to footnote his response to the Sadducees? Look for one. They aren't there. None whatsoever. Whenever Jesus speaks, he speaks on his own authority. That's what set him apart, wasn't it? Even to those even those sent to apprehend him on one much earlier occasion said so. Remember, uh, the Sanhedrin had said, go get this man, Jesus. 
and they returned empty-handed, saying, No man ever spoke as this man. His answers were always authoritative. Second, his answer to them was biblical. It was biblical. His answers always bring us back to our biblical theological foundations. The Sadducees were willing to go back as far as Deuteronomy chapter 25 and the law of leveret marriage. They were able to go back that far in order to build their argument against the resurrection of the body. Jesus takes them back even farther. to the third chapter of Exodus and the burning bush and the calling of Moses. At Exodus 3.13, Moses restates back to the Lord the mission that he just received. And he says there, beginning at verse 13 of Exodus 3, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. On that day, in Exodus, when the Lord called Moses, there on the backside of the desert, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had all been dead for centuries. Their bodies, laid in a cave, the cave of Machpelah, their bodies were turning to dust. And yet, the Lord had not forgotten them. The Lord had not abandoned them. The Lord had not failed to keep his promise to them. In fact, in God's eyes, which is to say in actual reality, though separated at physical death from their bodies, to God, these men still lived and still do live. And this is what Jesus means when he says in verse 38, Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then he adds those cryptic words, For all live to him. The first death which is the separation of our souls from our bodies, or if you prefer, the shedding of our bodies from our souls, that first death doesn't usher us into a state of non-being. It doesn't usher us even into a state of sleep. 
still to God we live. For all live to him. So the Christian, trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ on his behalf, at the moment of physical death, crosses over and finds himself living now in paradise, in mansions prepared for us, awaiting the consummation of all things and the glorious future resurrection of the body from the grave. That's the trusting, believing, faithful Christian's future and hope. The unbeliever, on the other hand, at the moment of his first death, proceeds without a moment's sleep or slumber directly into the second death. The death that has teeth. The death that has an insatiable appetite for justice. The Apostle John identifies this second death in the Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, as the lake of fire. Into it the soul of the wicked is cast, yet still he lives to God. Because whether experiencing God's grace or experiencing his justice, all live to him. Dear ones, please listen carefully. The hardened unbeliever, the stiff-necked, the rebel, who rejects the gospel and so casts away the only key to his prison, the unbeliever faces the prospect of a living and wide-awake death. The unspeakable torments of soul and conscience as he awaits the consummation of all things and the resurrection of his body to eternal damnation. On that day, to the torments of his soul will be added, or perhaps rather multiplied, the torments of his body, world without end. The stakes for you and for me are that high. So Jesus takes us back to Exodus 3, and in fact his biblical answer refers us even farther back to Genesis and the creation ordinance of marriage. The sons of this age, he says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Why is that? Why do we need the institution of marriage in this present age? Why do we need it? Well, from the beginning, it's been for companionship and mutual help, hasn't it? And also to fill the earth with a holy seed and subdue all things for God. Extend his dominion to the corners of the earth. But then... 
we as a race of men quickly fell into sin, didn't we? And suddenly death has entered into the picture. Now we have not only our formerly assigned responsibilities, we also have to replace the generation that went before us, filling the fallen ranks of humanity with fresh recruits, that is, with children, with babies. That's why the sons of this age marry and give their children in marriage. It's just to stay on top of the depopulation of the world because of sin. Because of the wages of sin are death. But will this be so in the age to come? No more death. No more loneliness. No more thorns. No more thistles. No more need of a help meet for us. More on this in a moment. To stay with my alphabetical points, I should next draw your attention to the fact that Jesus' answer to the Sadducees' mockery, his answer wasn't only authoritative and biblical, it also challenged them. It challenged them. It was a challenge in a specific way to reconsider their worldview, their materialistic worldview. Think things through. There it is, though tacitly and suggestively, there it is in the very language he uses in verse 35. Verse 35. Who is it who attains to that coming age and the glorious resurrection of the faithful. Who attains to it? Not everyone. It's those who are considered or counted or reckoned worthy. Why are they reckoned worthy? Well, it's because in God's eyes they are worthy. God doesn't believe in fictions. He, he believes what is true. He has made what is true, true. So they're reckoned worthy because in God's eyes they are worthy. And how did they come to be worthy of a resurrection to glory? How do we become worthy of that? It's by our being made worthy. Of Abraham, remember it was said, that he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned it, that is Abraham's faith, to him as righteousness. God reckoned him worthy by faith. So Christ's words challenge us to believe in promises that we haven't yet seen fulfilled. In this age, this present age, we live not by sight, but by faith. One final point to drive home this majesty of the believer's destiny. The Lord's answer to the Sadducees that day was didactic. It was didactic. Which is to say, it teaches us things that we otherwise wouldn't have known couldn't have known. 
his authoritative answer as the one sent forth from eternal glory, his answer by fresh revelation actually moves the sum of human knowledge forward. These are matters, that, the things that he is speaking of, these are matters that the world out there considers to be matters of pure conjecture. One man's guess is as good as another's about the world to come, as far as they're concerned. Strictly conjectural, but they're not conjectural, friends. They're not. Sound theology is never conjectural, never a matter of guesswork, never a matter of rabbinical or human opinion. The truth of the matter is, when it comes to life now and life forever, human opinion comes for nothing. Zero. If I ever give you an opinion from this pulpit, you can pretty much discount it, because I'm not here to give you opinions. Sound theology is revealed theology. The living and true God has spoken. Are we paying attention? Now, a careful student of the Old Testament gleans some bits and pieces here and there about the resurrection from the dead and the coming age when death will be no more. Isaiah, for instance, spoke of it. Daniel did and several of the Psalms. But Jesus makes the matter absolutely clear here. He says, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore, because they are like angels. And the word used here is actually stronger than that, not just they are like angels, the word means they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. We're out of time, and so I need to close. But dear ones, remember what's at stake. First of all, remember what's at stake in your reception of this awesomely good news. Jesus Christ came to show us the Father. He came to do always and only his Father's will. To reveal to us the truth about things that unless he had revealed it, would remain forever conjectural in matters of mere human opinion and guesswork. But we can know the truth. Blessed be God, we can know it even of things yet to be. Blessed be God that in these last days he's spoken to us in his Son. Amen.